This morning we have another first, and we're in the book of Acts, so there's a lot of firsts as we get into it, a lot of first experiences, first things that happen. And this morning we begin to look at the first sermon in the book of Acts, and there's a number of sermons scattered throughout this book. We're going to hear sermons by Peter, by Paul, by Stephen, by others. But this morning we look at the first of Peter's six sermons that are going to be represented here in the book. So the backdrop of this sermon is that the Holy Spirit has been sent. Jesus' promise has been fulfilled to send the helper. And on the day of Pentecost, his 120 disciples are together and the Holy Spirit is sent down upon them and there's flames of fire above their heads and they, they begin speaking in these foreign languages that they, they didn't know naturally. They had never studied with Rosetta Stone or whatever app is popular now. They are speaking in various languages and there are people in Jerusalem for Pentecost from all over the world and they hear the disciples speaking in different languages and they say, what's going on? I didn't know there were so many Egyptians in Jerusalem right now. I didn't know there, there were so many people from Rome in Jerusalem right now. I hear the voice of my homeland. What's going on? They heard the disciples speaking the mighty deeds of God. They heard the disciples speaking about Jesus, the Messiah, the glory of Christ and his work. And in response to this miracle... This phenomenon, this crazy experience, some of them are very intrigued and they're like, I want to know more. What is going on with that? Tell me more. That's one response. Another response is that there's naysayers, there's skeptics, there's, there's doubters who don't believe that there's anything significant, anything of God in what's going on. They, they hear the noise and they think this is a bunch of drunks mumbling, babbling, out of their minds. So there's these two responses. And Peter's response in this sermon is, is a response to both of these groups. Peter's speaking to those who want to know more, and he's speaking to the mockers. And it's a very important moment in the life of the church. The disciples have been commissioned by Jesus to go and spread the good news throughout the entire world, They've been given his spirit, and now they have been given the stage to speak about Jesus to the same group that just before was chanting, crucify him, crucify him, to the same very group that Pilate said, listen, their blood be on your heads and your hands is not on me. You do with him what you will. The same group that said, let his blood, Jesus' blood, be upon us and upon our children. The same group that that said that to Pilate, this is the group that's here right now. And I'm not saying it's the exact same group, but, you know, I was looking into it. How many people actually lived in Jerusalem at this time, at the time of Christ? Well, there's different numbers, but a general number, I was amazed by this, a general number that I came across a number of times, and I, I, this is not the Bible because I, it, could, I, it could be wrong, but they said it most likely was not more than 20,000 people, which blew my mind. Now, there might be more coming back to Jerusalem, because of Pentecost. But if you just take that number of 20,000 people, and then you recognize at the end of Peter's sermon that 3,000 people get saved, that's a pretty incredible, incredible number. 
And I'd never realized that before. So of these 3,000 plus people that are around to hear the sermon by Peter, you've got to recognize that many of the people who are listening to Peter are the same very people that said, give us Barabbas, crucify him, let his blood be on our heads, let on our hands, on the hands of our children. This is quite a moment. So would you stand with me? We're going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. These are the words that Peter chooses to open his sermon with. They're the backdrop. So they're, they're a part of his sermon, but he's quoting from the Old Testament. And then he's going to expound on them, and we'll look at what he says later in, in future weeks. He addresses the crowd, and he says in verse 15, These men, the disciples that were being accused of being drunk, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all of mankind, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's raise our hands to him in worship as we thank him for this word. Lord Jesus, it has been said that all those who call upon you will be saved. Your name is Savior. Your name is Redeemer, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. These names that we've already sung about this morning. And I pray that every single person here would know the truth of your name. That you would be their Savior, Redeemer. That you would be the mighty God, the one who gives them peace. The one that gives them wisdom. The one that gives them counsel. The one who is mighty, the one who is everlasting. Their strength, their Father. As we look to your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our eyes and that you would humble our hearts so that we might hear from you. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As we look at a passage like this, there's a lot of things that could be said. You take this text from Joel, and you could go in a lot of different directions with the, with the sermon. But what I want us to consider this morning is this. How does Peter respond to the crowd's accusation that the disciples were speaking in a different language? That, they, that those that were speaking in a different language were drunk, were crazy, etc. How does Peter respond to that accusation? Well, first we need to notice how he deals with this, how he, how he does not deal with this, how he does not respond, what he doesn't say. And what I want to point out right at the beginning is 
he doesn't really spend any time debating with the naysayers whether their accusations were correct or valid or not. He really doesn't give much time to any discussion. He gives zero attention to seeking to prove to them that what had just been experienced was real. Think about that. He could have gone and grabbed the guy who was speaking Egyptian, and then he could have gone and found somebody who grew up in Egypt and said, listen, hey, what did this guy say? Prove it to these guys. He could have done it. He could have found a message and an interpreter and proved the naysayers wrong. But he didn't do it. He could have had a show and tell where he set out to prove that the, the things that were being spoken in these foreign languages, it wasn't drunkenness, but they had experienced a miracle. This is phenomenal. Look at just what's happened. It's crazy. You're lucky to have witnessed it. He doesn't do that. He could have sought to establish the truth on the matter of the matter based on empirical proof, observed proof. He doesn't do that. He could have talked about the phenomenon that they had witnessed. He doesn't. He makes a very general comment about the insanity of thinking that pious, godly Hebrew Christians were drunk at 9 a.m. in the morning, sort of dismissive, and then he moves on. And what does he do? What does he move on to? What's his message rooted in? What's it founded on? Well, he speaks from the Word of God. He declares what has been foretold hundreds of years prior in this book of Joel. Joel was a prophet. I think some of you were in the class this morning that talked about the book of Joel. Joel was a prophet who lived in the Old Testament during a time of terrible plagues and famine throughout the land of Judah. And God, through his prophet Joel, sent warnings to Judah about the, the peril, the danger that they were in unless they repented quickly and completely and turned back to God. He prophesied, Joel did, from the mouth of God that they would receive punishment from foreign enemies and that disasters would ravish the land. And he called on all of the people and the priests of the land to humble themselves and to seek God's forgiveness. That's his message. And he promised that if they would repent, that God would forgive them and that he would bless them. And they'd be renewed spiritually and they'd receive material blessings. But he also warned that the day of the Lord was coming. That's a theme in his prophecy. It's coming. And when it comes, the locusts that you've experienced, that disaster, that's going to seem like gnats. It's going to be much worse when the day of the Lord comes if you don't repent. So that's Joel's message. And it is from this prophecy that Peter draws his response to the naysayers, the mockers, and the crowd that's just wondering generally, what in the world is going on here? He says, what you've all experienced is not madness. And the basis for proving that it's not madness to the people is that it's a fulfillment of what God had said was going to happen. 
hundreds of years in the past. It shall be in those days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Now, that's a reference to what's just happened on the day of Pentecost. The spirit was given not just to the disciples, not just to the Jews, but as we'll see, it's a little bit progressive. Not everyone receives the spirit in the exact same moment, but it starts here. And God is pouring out his spirit to all those who believe in him and look to Jesus Christ as their savior. Joel's prophecy continues, reiterating the effect that the giving of the Holy Spirit is going to have in the life of the men and women who receive him. And it says this, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And this verse may seem confusing or cryptic, but it doesn't need to be cryptic. It doesn't need to confuse us. In the Bible, the prophets are the ones who were giving who were given understanding. It's a very simple way of understanding what this passage is saying. Prophets were those that were given understanding by God. They understood the times. They understood the things that were to come because God had told them. They understood with clarity God's response to Israel if they didn't heed what was said, if they did. They had an understanding of God's will. They had an understanding of where Israel was at at the time. They discerned themselves rightly. They discerned God rightly. Dreams and visions were a common way that God spoke to his prophets in the Old Testament. And you say, well, where do you get that? Well, look at Numbers 12. In Numbers 12, God's making the point about how much he loves Moses. And he says, Moses, I speak with face to face. But before that, what he says is that I appear to my servants by visions and dreams. That's how he spoke to his prophets, visions and dreams. But I speak with my servant Moses face to face. And so what is being said here is that in the last days, the days that we're in, the days following Christ, God's spirit is going to be given to all of mankind, that all will prophesy, meaning that all believers will have the gift of understanding the secrets of God. All of God's people will be endowed with the spiritual wisdom and understanding that was once only given to the the prophets to relay to the people. So this quotation from Scripture is Peter's answer to the crowd. This is what he offers them. He doesn't seek to prove it with a showdown. He says, you're wrong, essentially, Not because I can prove it to you, but because this is what the Word of God says. His correctness, their wrongness, is rooted in the Word of God. That's his measure. He does not seek to prove the validity of the miracle that they've experienced. He does not seek to prove to the mockers that they're wrong and that the experience of various languages was legitimate. He doesn't take out a breathalyzer and pass it around and tell them all to blow. So he could prove to the onlooking world, that they weren't drunk. He speaks the word of God to them. He points to the Bible and he says, this is my proof about what has happened. This is what gives legitimacy to what you have experienced. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our morning. God's word says that it's true. It's no act. It's no drunkenness. God's word is what gives legitimacy to this experience. Peter does not try to establish what is true on the basis of what he experienced and what they experienced together. Rather, he looks to the word of God. 
And I want us to notice something important here. There is a marked difference between the crowd and the disciples in the response to what has happened on Pentecost. The crowds, both those who are intrigued and the mockers together, all of the crowd that has come to see what that loud rushing wind was all about, interpreted the experience through their own feelings about the matter. It's what they're basing their response off of. Peter and the other disciples interpret the very same experience through the Word of God. Here's what we need to recognize this morning. The Word of God is absolutely true. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's Jesus' claim. The Word of God is true. God is truth. It is part of his nature. You can't separate truth from God. The Bible is true. The Christian who looks to the truth, to the Word, to give light to our experiences, to establish us in what's true in our lives, the things we experience in the world around us, that is the life of the Christian. The Christian looks to the truth to establish what is real, to establish in our minds what actually the truth is, to see the truth with clarity. I guess I'd put it that way. We do not let our feelings interpret the truth of our experiences, which is what the crowd had just done. And if we're honest, this is easier said than done. In the West, society's commitment to objective truth has been eroding for decades. And we find ourselves in a day where there is no higher source of truth than the inner affirmations of one's own heart. Our feelings about what we experience, that is truth. It may be your personal truth, but for you, we live in a world where your personal truth reigns and my personal truth reigns. And the ultimate supreme judge of all truth is the way we feel. There is nothing that more defines what is true in our day than our own feelings about the experiences that we go through, that we walk through. This is why I can share the experience of being male with another man. Same experience, just like the, 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 the crowd and the apostles who all experienced the same thing in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And yet, I can be a man and another man can be a woman. He can declare the truth about the matter that he is a female. Feelings dictate the truth about our experience. That's what I'm trying to illustrate. The pervasiveness of sexual confusion in our, our day is just one example of many that reflects the reality that our society is dictated by an individual's feelings about what is true. What we feel is the highest expression of truth. In other words, our feelings define what is true about what we experience rather than something outside, in our case, as, as Christians who believe the Bible, rather than the truth of God defining what is true about all of our experiences. I was recently reading... Um, the, I was recently reading an article that was published in the, in the Washington Post. And 
it caught my eye because the, the title was something like Why Millennials Are having, Choosing Not to Have Children. And so I clicked on it. I read through the article. And the article started by talking about how American birth rates have been mired near record lows for quite a while. But then it went on and it said that zero child families are more and more becoming the norm. And they had a lot of data and that they pulled from, and there was a lot of graphs and charts. It's interesting that, you know, like 2% of people said, said that zero children was the optimal amount of children. But if you look at the percentage of people that have zero children, it would appear that there's a discrepancy. There's a huge discrepancy. So there's a lot of data and historical analysis over the generations and trends in America. But after all, the tracing of the trends, what the article said was that outside of the great baby boom, it's weird to see such a, vigi- a vivid, I'm quoting, a weird to see such a vivid generational turning point as we've seen with millennials embracing childlessness. Then the author asked the question, how has this happened? His answer is that millennials onward are choosing to be childless because of the hardships that they've sustained. They've been, and this is more quotes, they've been hammered by the Great Recession. The student debt is soaring. They aren't able to get any jobs. They can't afford to buy any homes because of high prices. And they've had to endure the great COVID-19 crisis. He ended the article by making the assertion that millennials are probably, uh, I'm sorry, that the millennials have probably faced more hardship in their childbearing years than any other generation in American history. Now, now, you know, okay, I'm, I'm thinking of my grandpa in the Great Depression, and I'm thinking of other things, but, you know, I'm thinking about this article. Now, listen, unsurprisingly, the author of this article is himself a millennial who describes his own household, which, quote, notably includes a brilliant dog and zero children, okay? Now, I'm also a millennial. I've lived through the things that he spoke of, and I recognize that God has put me in a position where some of those things haven't affected me so much because of the blessing of my family and those I'm surrounded with. I'm not trying to say that none of those things hurt anybody, okay? But what I am saying is it isn't a matter of interpreting our experiences as, uh, as conservative versus liberal opinion, okay? Conservatism is no better in this regard, if it only views our experiences through the lens of our feelings, like this author is. As a Christian, I do not live in the bondage of interpreting my own experiences through my feelings. As Christians, we have been given by God the freedom and the joy and the clarity of knowing what is true about the experiences that God causes us to walk through, the good ones and the bad ones, because we have the truth of God's word illuminating and giving us that clarity and that sight and that vision. Truth is not subjective. It is not based on feelings. It is not established by experiences. God is truth and his word is truth. So Peter's sermon does not consist in holding up the miraculous experience to validate what is true to an unbelieving crowd. He just doesn't do it. He doesn't seek to change their feelings on the matter. Instead, he does, but he doesn't do it by trying to prove anything. Instead, he holds up the word of God that is truth. And he does it in a way that's simple, clear, and bold. He's unflinching. He's unwavering. He's absolutely convinced 
about what is true, and he offers them the word of God. And he knows that nothing else could truly satisfy them, actually. The only truth, uh, only the truth of God actually has the power to change them. You think about people all throughout Jesus' ministry. They said, show us a miracle and we'll believe. Show us a miracle and we'll believe. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. He did many signs and they still didn't believe. The Pharisees always sat in judgment on Jesus' miracles for as great and powerful as they were. They were never convinced. They always looked down their noses at Jesus. They said, we've got the law. This guy, all he's got is his eloquent words and the, the, the mighty things he can do. But when Jesus quoted the word of God to the Pharisees, what happened? They were dumbstruck. They answered him not a word. They didn't know what to say. The word has power. The truth has power. God's word is truth. And what we feel about the things we may experience may or may not testify to actually what is true. Our feelings may or may not testify to what is actually true. I trust that many of you would agree with me on this. Certainly when I talk about um, human sexuality, we can agree that we may, what we may feel about an experience does not establish what is true. But if we come back from the very edge of that extreme example that most of you will agree with me on, we find that we all aren't necessarily altogether different, just in different ways. We too can wrongly allow our feelings about our experiences to establish what is true, and we should not do that. We feel stressed about the workload that we're, we're currently living in. There's many things that we feel like we have a responsibility for. And so we feel the need to utilize Sunday as a day to get our stuff done, or we will fail. And failure isn't good, and so we rationalize. And we sort of posit one thing against the other. We say that if we don't, you know, fill the Lord's day with the things that we need to get done, bad things are going to happen to us. Of course, the Bible says that Honoring and keeping the Lord's day and setting it apart causes us to be blessed. That's what Isaiah says. He says, you that will refrain from your labor and engage in the labor of the Lord will be wonderfully, wonderfully blessed. One of our elders, Matt French, taught a Sunday school class on that passage about a year ago. And he was pointing out the immense blessing God promises when we honor his day. Hmm, what's true? What truth are you going to decide to live your life by? Your, the feelings about your experience or God's word. We feel that we can't love our spouse because of all the things they've done against us, the sins they've committed, the trust they've broken. The Bible says that we love because Jesus loved us and that is, nothing is impossible for the man or the woman that loves God. It says that if you don't love your brother, you're not truly my disciple. You're worse than an unbeliever, right? So if you, if you need to love your brother, how much more do you need to love your spouse, right? What truth do you believe? Your feelings or the Word of God? Where do you fall? We say we can't trust because we've been hurt in the past, and I recognize that trust needs to be built, but 
the Bible says that we are to trust. We, first of all, we have to trust God. We have to trust in the Lord with all our might and lean not on our own understanding and in all our ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. People that have been hurt by other people so often refuse to trust anyone else and, and ultimately often refuse to trust God because they, because of their hurt, refuse to let anyone straighten their path but themselves. They will be the one steering their ship. But God calls you to trust, not stupidly, but to trust him always and to trust those he puts in your life that love you. Which truth are you going to believe? Some of us, some of you have been severely hurt by churches or people in the past, and yet God still calls you to submit to a church, to love a church, to love the church that Jesus loved and died for. He laid down his life for his bride. He loves the church, warts and all. Can you love the church, warts and all? Can you be a part of a church and submit yourself to a church, warts and all? Because the Bible calls you to it. It says you'll be blessed through it. It says don't forsake the assembly of Christians. It says make those who lead you their work a joy. Can you do that? Or do your feelings coming out of experiences cast in steel and iron what is truth for you? Or are you willing to have the word of God? These questions lay all throughout our lives. And what I'm calling us to, what the Bible calls us to, is to come down on the side of Scripture. Come down on the side of God. Come down as Peter came down, by offering the word of God. A few years ago, I'm wearing glasses. A few years ago, I started having issues with um, my sight, especially when I was typing during a sermon, uh, uh, a summer before I was preaching a lot. It was, it was when I was trying to write sermons in the summertime. And I remember sitting and looking at the screen thinking, wow, I don't know what's going on, but I need to make the font bigger, you know, getting headaches looking at the screen. And so eventually, eventually, I made an appointment at an optometrist, and I went in for an exam. And when I went in for the exam, I remember him telling me, you know, it was the Valley Vision or whatever in Costco, and I'm sitting there on the table, and he says, read the you know, third line, read the fourth line. And I remember being embarrassed, like, whoa, I can't read anything. It's a blur. And uh, it was sort of a reality check for me that I needed, needed glasses. I had no ability to discern with clarity what was in front of me. And I came out of that eye exam with a realization. If I was to see clearly... If I wanted to do that, then I would need to look at life through a certain lens. And this is an analogy for our lives. We need to view life through the right lens. I was thinking about our, many of us are in small groups. We're studying the book of Ecclesiastes together this year. And this is really what Ecclesiastes is all about, I think. As I was thinking about it, it Ecclesiastes is a contrast between the man who views life, what's true, through the lens of his own desires, his own feelings, versus the man who looks at life through the lens of God's truth. Ecclesiastes is a contrasting narrative between the vanity of the man who lives for his own desires and feelings versus the fullness, actually, of the man who recognizes the great gift of God that's all around him. God's truth 
to see past the vanities of this world. He understands God's truth to see past the vanities of this world and to make sense of it all. I think that's what Ecclesiastes is actually about. I want to instruct us and warn us away from following our feelings about the experiences that God puts us in to be the great judge of what's true. Now I want to move on. And I want to say, on the other hand, when you obey what the Bible says, when you live in line with what God says is true, God will give you the greatest of experiences. You think about what happened on Pentecost and the beauty and the glory of that experience. God will allow you to be part of things that bring your life so much joy and fulfillment. He will allow you to see things, to do things, to be a part of things that you marvel at as you look back at them years later. Oftentimes you'll marvel at it in the moment, but as time goes on, you'll, you'll just recognize, the, the, you'll see the, the sort of the, the fruit that it, it bear, bears over time, and you'll, you'll glorify God. And it will fill you with so much joy. These things come as a result of you taking what God has said and acting on them. This is the lesson behind so many of the stories in Scripture. You think about it. You you see it all over the place. You see it with King David. He was young. Before he was king, he was young. He was a young man. He wasn't a trained warrior. He was surrounded by his older brothers and other soldiers who were trained. But they were terrified of the threat that was upon them. They were terrified of the the Philistine warrior Goliath. There wasn't much about the situation from a human perspective that looked promising. If David was to go based off of his experience versus Goliath's, not too promising. And yet he didn't view things that way. He didn't live in the bondage of fear. He lived a life of glory and joy as he saw the world around him through the lens that God said was true. And what David knew to be true about God was that God was great, that he was mighty, that it wasn't the size or the strength of the warrior, but it was the strength of the God that stood behind the warrior that mattered. David had that clarity. David remembered all the promises that God had made to his father and to his forefathers that he would be with them and that he would support them, that he would bless them. You could think of other people. You could, the same could be said for Moses leaving Egypt. He didn't live in the insecurity and doubt. He ultimately trusted God's word for him. He wavered at the beginning, but ultimately he threw down on God's side. And that's how he lived to be one of the greatest leaders that Israel ever had. When men and women take what God has said, and they say, I'm going to live that way. I'm going to do what God says. It's right. Even if my heart and my mind, the things that process our experiences and are tied to our feelings, they tell me otherwise, I don't care. I'm ultimately going to trust what God says. When they do that, God gives them experiences that are powerful and wonderful. David was victorious over Goliath. and He became king. He saved up all the money for the temple. I mean, you just think about the glory of David's life. Would if any of that happened if he wouldn't have been obedient and thrown down with God's truth at the beginning and throughout? Same could be said with Moses. He led Israel out of Egypt. He was the greatest leader Israel ever had. 
This isn't just true in the Bible, though. This isn't just true for those that speak face-to-face with God. That's always a temptation for us to think, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is true in all of our lives every day. I was thinking about the things that have happened in this church over our time together. I was actually thinking about all the stories I remember hearing when we built this building. How many gave very sacrificially, gave far beyond how they could rationally conceive of actually providing that money. I remember hearing stories of very specific people saying, you know, I, you know, if you knew what I made, it doesn't make sense, but I'm trusting that God will provide. And hearing that in the months that followed and the years that followed, that God did. Nobody has got, become down and out in this congregation through that process. God has only blessed us. God has provided for us at every turn. You think about the, the things that have the blessings that I've received, I was thinking about the blessings I've received through the faith and trust in that God is true. My feelings don't necessarily tell me what's right. I'm going to come down on God's side and I'm going to win every time. You know, I cited that, that uh, article about childlessness and I, I know we've, we've have, uh, it's, I am so pleased to be a pastor of a church where children aren't just valued and wanted by grandparents, but by newlyweds as well, those that have mixed feelings and mixed emotions about such things sometimes. That is such a gift. And I think about the blessings that we have received, I've received from becoming a father. I think about, I went on a Sons of Thunder trip, our junior high, early high school group, and some of those kids were born while I remember being, you know, somewhat rational in my thinking, a young teenager, you know what I mean? And I'm thinking, man, I am so blessed through the children that you have had. We are so blessed in so many ways. The blessing of God, the experiences that he pours out on us, when we're willing to say, yeah, God says that children are a blessing, that they enrich you, that no man is poor when he's surrounded with children. And when, you believe, when we say, okay, yeah, I'm going to live in line with that, it's such a blessing I mean, I, I was just thinking about this concert that we just put on, and I think, man, some of the kids that were born out of some of those challenges years ago were running sound for us, and they did a better job than I could have ever done. And I think, man, there's so many blessings. I'm not, I'm not trying to be trite. I'm just saying you actually meditate and extrapolate out on the blessing of God. It's incredible. I think about those of you that have come to this church, and you've, you know, you've been living with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you've heard, hey, God doesn't want that for you. And you've gotten married. And that faith, it's like, okay, yeah, let's do it. You know, let's get married. It has been such a, the most wonderful weddings I've ever been a part of. Because they're humble, simple, faith-filled, living out the truth of God. And, and, you, and, and you are some of the biggest blessings in my life, seeing you guys walk in line with the truth. And that walking in line with the truth has continued. And you're such a joy to me. God has done this in our church, and he will continue to do it. God will bless you when you decide, I'm not going to live my life based off of my feelings and my emotions about a set of circumstances. I'm going to use the truth of God's word to guide me. God's word is truth. It's been given to give me clarity. All of us must root our actions, the actions that we take, in deeply in what God has said is true. Do not go blind making your way through life, processing your experience through the lens of your emotions. Don't go without glasses like me. 
Use the lens that God has given you. He's provided you a lens so that you can see clearly, so that your thinking and your sight is not distorted. The lens that he has given you to see clearly is his truth. It is his word. It is what Peter quotes unabashedly instead of trying to prove anything through some sort of show and tell. Live according to that truth and your life will be full of incredible experiences and the power and the joy of God. That's what he promises you. Let's pray.